Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. First Thessalonians 5. Today I want to talk about a holy prayer a holy prayer, and that's going to be in two verses, and you'll be glad to know that I don't have 15 pages of notes, but I'm not far off that number, so we got to cruise quick. Um, sometimes in the middle of Paul's writings, uh, he includes the prayer that he's praying for people, and that, that sounds a little strange. This is, the, this is the second time in this letter. The other time is at the end of chapter 3, and I'm going to read that for you, and we'll, we'll come back to chapter 5 and read our verses there. After that, but he says um, in chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you, and may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy angels. So we know it's a prayer because of the word, the word may is in here. And uh, if you have the KJV, then you'll, in the second part, you'll see, um, I pray for you. I pray to God for you. And so, uh, or you might see any time in scripture, you might see it say, may God or may Jesus or may the spirit. And anytime you see that in scripture, uh, that means that it's a prayer that somebody's praying, that that the writer is praying and he's written it out or had his secretary write it out for us so that we can have that prayer. And uh, I used to wonder how they knew that this was a prayer. And uh, you, can, you can tell that by the word may or I pray. Sometimes it'll say I pray in there. Uh, but uh, I found out that the, the way the verb is spelled tells us that it's a wish or a prayer. So Paul here we know isn't just wishing to God that these things will happen. He's praying for them. He's asking God to do something. Just just as we pray for people, we're praying for people that they'll they'll be healed. We're praying for people that they'll come to know Christ, and we're praying for people in their difficult circumstances. That's what Paul is doing here. And then the question comes: Why um, why tell people what you're praying? Why tell them that? Why write this out? Just send the message with Timothy, or in some other way? Why is it that you're just pray the prayer? Like we don't. We don't have to tell people what we're praying for to get answers. Are you with me? Like, we can just pray for them, and then God does the work. But the question comes up, or is obvious to me, why, why tell people that you're praying? And not only that, why is it part of inspired Scripture? There's so many other things we would like to see in Scripture that aren't there. Any, anybody agree with me on that? Like, what's Jesus like as a teenager? That would be an interesting topic, wouldn't it? But Scripture's silent on that. We hear he's born, he's 12 years old, he's a man, 30. Okay, so we don't have everything we want to know, but we've got, a, we've got a prayer here. And so I say that to say this must be important. It must be important that God has put the prayer here. Why tell people a prayer? Why inspire it in Scripture? And I think there's three good reasons for that before we, we look at what this is. The first is to know, to help know what's important enough to pray about. Now, I know as soon as I say that, you're going to say we should pray about everything. I know, I know that. But what's important enough to pray about and then to write it down in Scripture? Okay? So 
The answer to that question is uh, that Paul wants these believers and now us to to know. He's reminding them, he's reminding us of God's purpose. And this challenges us uh, to know that God is not just settling for what he's got in us. He's working a work to perfect us. And so as he prays this prayer, uh, he's praying certain things. To, to make sense, we really need to read this. So let's look at verse 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Okay, so these are, these are the verses that are coming right at the end. Paul is sending this prayer. He's sending it to new believers. We're hearing it now, and it's true of us as well that this is God's desire. We need to know God's purpose for us is that God wants to challenge us to live beyond how we have lived because Jesus is in our heart, and he's growing us to be more and more like him. Amen? So we need to know that. That's the, the challenge here is for not just God settling for what he's got in, in us, but, you know, we, we come to the altar and the song is, Just As I Am. But he doesn't leave us just where we were. He challenges us and he changes us. And he, he loves us enough to bring us into uh, his likeness again. Now, he's restoring uh, things that were lost in the fall. Okay? Anybody realize that this world isn't the way that it's supposed to be? It's not because we're fallen. We chose something other than God's plan. We rebelled. Uh, the world is falling. There's problems in the world, and sometimes we want to blame God for the problems. And God tried to warn us not to go that way, but our forefathers refused. Okay, so we have a world that we didn't uh, want in a way, and yet a world that we constantly choose, Right? You hear what I'm saying in that is that even though we say we don't want the effects of other people's sins, uh, we still want a world in which we're free to do whatever we want. Anybody bugged a little bit by the more and more stores you go to, the more and more things they're locking down? I was having a conversation with somebody about that the other day, that you can't even buy a toothbrush or a pair of safety goggles at Fred Meyer without getting somebody that has a key to a cabinet so that you can get in. Like, do you realize that the... The fallenness of our world has created that situation. And if we all lived the way God wanted us to, we wouldn't need to lock anything up. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? And so the second reason he writes this prayer is to communicate the extent of God's work. He's reminding us of God's thoroughness. If you, you look at the verse here, it says, may, he, uh, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May he... May he um, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. So here, it's telling us of the extent of God's work. He's reminding us of God's thoroughness in us. You, you might think that um, it's only salvation that he wants. It's like, save us and get us to heaven. And uh, some people would never say this, but they're living like this. And leave me alone in the meantime. And what God wants to do is something different from that. You might think that even uh, he's done with you, like you've, Reach the level of perfection. If you think that, tell your neighbor how perfect you are, and uh, <laughs> we'll all wait for the laughs, right? <laughs> we're, we're not perfect. We're not even close to that. We've, we've got more that God is trying to do in us, and he wants, to, he wants to bring us into dedication in every area of our lives. So the work's not finished until God's not finished till the work's done. A third reason that he mentions this prayer, writes this prayer down, I think, is to encourage 
us that God will help. Okay, this I think is probably the main thrust of this is that in your growth in God, you're not alone. God himself will do what he said he would do. God himself will see to it. And the last part of that verse is he is faithful and he will do it. So God is involved in this process of making us sanctified or making us holy. And so this is really important for us to understand that we are challenged in God's word to be holy, to strive for holiness. But it's not all us, and however you see the working between God and humanity, we have to do something with it. But God is the one who is the major player in this. He's the major worker in our holiness. He's doing something extraordinary in us, something we would have never thought or dreamed. Let's talk first here about the definition of holiness. As we we come to this, the word holy uh, isn't necessarily in here. We have the word sanctify, but you can't really understand sanctify until you understand the word holy. And so that's really important. This is a, a big concept that's a lot of a lot of things in Scripture uh, deal with it. And so I want to talk about one aspect of it. Holy comes from a, a Hebrew word that means to cut, to cut. So it means to cut. And uh, one side of the line is separated from what's on the other side of the line. And we just got done with Christmas. And so the illustration that popped into my head with this um, is wrapping gifts. Anybody do your wrapping of gifts? Anybody cheat a little bit and put things in a bag with tissue paper on top? Anybody old school and you really you wrap the presents and you fold them in all the right places? Okay, I like I like kind of like doing that. Is that okay? That's a little bit of a <clears throat> obsessive thing. I like to do that, and um, I wrapped some gifts this year. And when you're you're cutting the paper. You have this dedicated piece, right? You kind of measured it out, and that's the dedicated piece. And all the other stuff that you're going to trim away is either going to be preserved for something else or it goes to the scrap pile, right? You know what I'm talking about? So you've got this measured out. <laughs> and uh, at least a handful of times this year I got it wrong. and <laughs> I had to cut new pieces. But there's this cutting that takes place, and I really like the paper that has the lines on it on the inside. It makes it a lot easier. And we don't have the lines it it's it's a wild it's the wild west when that happens. So, um, thinking about this, you are cutting with the scissors, and you have the dedicated piece that's going to go on the gift. And so, on one side of the scissors is the piece that you're going to use, and the other the other side is the piece that's not been chosen. Okay, one side's been chosen. One side is is the right piece. The other is the remnant or the leftovers. And um, and so this is why I'm cutting. I'm distinguishing between two things, what's useful and what is going to be discarded. And so um, after I was done, I had a few lonely scraps of wrapping paper um, that were sad, sad pieces that got left out, little Santa faces that were frowning and snowflakes that were melting because they didn't get to be used. Um, they were sadly unsanctified pieces. There's the chosen piece. There's the piece that is on the right side of things and on the right side of the line, on the right side of the scissors, on the right side of the cut. And there are those that are on the other side. And so um, God is holy, and, and so this is the hard part to kind of conceptualize with the illustration that I use. Um, he doesn't need to be sanctified. To be sanctified means to be made holy. It's the verb to to be made holy or to become holy, okay? So when we talk about sanctified, 
uh, God doesn't need to be sanctified because he already is holy. Okay, just as this. God, have you ever thought about this? God never needs to learn. If he knows everything perfectly, he never has to learn or increase or get better. When you think God gets better, that's, there's a word for that. It's called process theology. You believe God is increasing and growing and becoming better every day. He's not. He's already perfect. Okay, So when we think about his holiness, he's already holy. He's always been holy. He is the definition of holy. He's distinct from creation. With God, the line is already there. He's the reason for the line. He is a cut above the rest in every way. So we have life. Right, we we have life, and I, this often comes to mind when I think about that. Is that all of our life is derived? Like we didn't get life because we self-willed ourselves into existence. You weren't even you weren't even a, thinking about that. Your parents were thinking about that, and you came to be. Right, at somebody else, the Bible even talks about that. You you weren't born uh, at the will of your parent. I mean, you weren't the, born at the will of yourself, but the will of your parents. Okay, right, and then. Uh, being sustained in life is not wholly up to you because we borrow energy and life from other things like plants and animals when we eat them. And so there's a lot of things. We breathe the air that God gives. There's a lot of things that are outside of our control. And so we're lesser than God because God is has life in himself. He's fully self-existent. You understand that all that there is in life comes from him. And so in that way, he is distinct. He's on the other side of the line from us. Then not only that, but there's, there's other ways in which he's on the other side of the line. Um, he's distinct from all creation. He's a cut above the rest. We have life. He has life in himself. We can do good things, but God is good. Do you remember the guy that came to Jesus and said, uh, Good sir, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? None are good but God. What are you getting at here, fella? And uh, the, the thing is, is that God is good. We are, we are not so good, okay? And if we're to narrow this a little bit, in a fallen world like ours, the distinction becomes more obvious. And so let's narrow it. Humanity is the crown of creation. I don't think we, we ought to argue that. As a Christian, we ought to know that, that the, the crown of creation is humanity, Okay. He set us above the other creatures. He's given us dominion. He's, he's called us to steward his good creation. He's made us in his image. Okay. And so we're the crown of his creation. And when Jesus came, when God chose to assume flesh, it wasn't in some other form. It was in the form of humanity. So he is the humanity is the crown of all of creation. And yet, not only are we less than him in creation, we're contrary to him because of the fall. So you see that, like, if we're thinking about our life, we don't have life in the same way he does. But when we're thinking about his holiness, his morality, his goodness, we not only don't have that morality or the morality that he has, we've actually turned the other direction and gone the other way. And so we're in rebellion against him. We're not only not as good as God, but we're the opposite of good. We've become evil. So God is on the one side of the line. We were on the other, distanced by sin. But we believe that in Jesus, he brings us over to his side of the line. Okay? Um, we still have behaviors. And let me stop here and, and make this thought plain. 
when you are putting your faith in Christ, positionally you become holy. God's brought you over to his side of the line. Okay? So now in your life, you're, just, you're set apart to him. You know, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. Anybody remember that? Like, they got some immorality that's going on in their church. They've got problems with getting along with one another. Spiritual gifts are being abused. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. Um, they have a wrong understanding of obedience. And all of those things are happening. And yet, when Paul writes to them, the, the words he uses at the beginning is he says, you're saints in Christ Jesus. And saints simply is this, holy ones. Holy ones. He calls them holy. They're not practically holy in every way. But positionally, they're saints in Christ, just as you and I. The moment we breathe the statement of our prayer, and however your theology would work with this, when you come to Christ, you are holy positionally, meaning that you've come across the line set apart to God. Everybody hearing that? That's important. Okay? But not all of your baggage is so holy. And you might say, well, I don't have any baggage now. Okay, but you may have habits that you still do that are like the old man. Okay, so those things need to be sanctified. Those things need to be brought in to the holiness of God. And so we are on one side, but not all of our behaviors and attitudes and affections are not consistent with living on God's side of the line. And so now we're commanded to live, now in Christ, we're commanded to live in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. We read that this morning. Live like you're on, in other words, live, live like you're on God's side. Be holy. Live like you're on God's side of the line. Things are different. There are things out there that are wicked. They're God-contrary in their very nature. And we can't continue to exist in that realm. We have to, as we stand positionally on God's side, we have to increasingly become practically on God's side in the way that we live. Seeing our attitudes and our actions and our... Um, affections transformed in him. I'll define those in just a moment. We all know what our actions and behaviors are. Those are a lot of times the sinful things that people we focus upon. But many of those things are really rooted into wrong attitudes and affections. Would you agree that life is lived from the inside out? Jesus said it this way, um, that like lust and murder, uh, adulteries, those begin in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when there's something that needs to continually be transformed in our heart, then then those things become more and more like God in their practical outworking. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, a good definition for sanctify, this is from the standard lexicon for Greek. It says that this word sanctify here means to include someone in the inner, inner circle of what's holy. Okay? You've come across the line into God's camp. When God sanctifies you, he's, he's first of all positionally done so. Holiness is a positional thing. In other words, it's something about who you are now. But it also needs to be something about what we do. Okay, And that's the challenge of living the Christian life is to bring our behavior into conformity with what God is doing or wants us to do to honor him. And so First Thessalonians talks about that a lot. Another definition uh, is to be set apart for God. And there's disagreement among many well-meaning people about what sanctification and holiness is. Some have viewed it as a separation from externals, like don't ever look like you're doing bad things or, um, you know, don't wear that kind of clothes or 
don't go to those kinds of places. It's not about whether you've done sin or not. It's about externally looking like it, okay? And I think uh, holiness goes much deeper than that. Uh, and sometimes it's been just about behavior, surface behaviors. And, and there's an element to holiness in that. Like we shouldn't, as Christians, we shouldn't be lying. You with me? And as Christians, we shouldn't be uh, getting drunk. And as Christians, we shouldn't be committing adultery. And as Christians, we shouldn't uh, live like the world and be greedy and, and selfish and steal from people. Externals, okay? Uh, but not the greedy part. That's more of an internal. But then there are attitudes and commitments that we need to be separated in. I have this book on my shelf called Five Views on Sanctification. Doesn't that sound like an interesting title to you? Five Views on Sanctification. And, and these are the, um, the major views among Bible-believing Christians. All of them are Bible-believing Christians who believe these views. And there are uh, more varieties beyond those five views, and there are subsets of them. And that might bother you a little bit, that there are so many different views of what holiness means, but people agree on a lot more than what you think. In the preface to this book, it says this, that regardless of what the views are of sanctification, like there's a Pentecostal view and a Wesleyan view, and that may not mean anything to you. Maybe uh, there's an Augustinian dispensational view. That gets kind of wordy, doesn't it? And then a reform view and a, a, a Keswick view. Okay, so all of these views of what sanctification is like. And they're a little bit different in how it's worked out, but check this out. These are Bible-believing Christians, and these are the things they agree upon. There's three of them. Most everyone agrees that sanctification is past, present, and future. Okay, do you know that? That what God has done in terms of making you holy, there's an element of the past that's done, and it objectively is yours. In other words, it doesn't matter how I feel on any given Tuesday. If I'm in Christ, I'm sanctified. Amen. That's good news. Okay, so everybody agrees there's a past element. There's a present element to it in which we are trying to be God's people, and there's a future element in which all the effects of sin are done away with. Thank God for that. Okay, the second thing that uh, most agree upon is that sanctification requires the active involvement of believers who devote themselves to the disciplines of God's Word and make hard choices against evil and for God in a fallen world. There's an active element to it, okay, for all of us. We're trusting in the Lord that He's done the important work of setting us apart. He said, you are holy, now live up to the name holy. You're holy, now be holy. Okay, uh, that's the, the call of every believer. The third one is this, and, and maybe I should back up and say, um, now we're making these choices against evil in a fallen world. The third one is this, is that everyone agrees um, that sanctification can be achieved successfully and the struggle against sin can be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in this life or the next. Everybody believes that in these categories, that sin will not have dominion over us any longer because of Christ. Come on, isn't that good news? That you can be, it's not an impossible thing when God is involved. You can be holy. We don't have to say, well, I'm saved, but I just can't ever get victory. You can get victory, and we can have victory in every area. And so I'm not suggesting to you we become in some kind of sinless perfection where we can't sin. I'm saying that there is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to live in victory over sin. Come on, we ought to agree with that and, 
and uh, be on board with that. So um, we're not trying to follow any of those traditions. We're trying to be scriptural, and that's probably what everybody would say in those categories. But I just want you to know that our desire is not to be in some tradition or other. We want to hear what the Bible has to to say about it. What's the extent of holiness? Look at verse 23 with me. It says, may God sanctify you, make you holy through and through. May he set you upon his side of the line, if we're just going to go back to our metaphor here, on, on that side, on his side of the line, and bring all of who you are onto that side of the line too. Okay? Now, I know there's a, a death in Christ and we're raised to newness of life. But if we're honest about things, we understand that there are still habits that want to cling to us, old ways of doing things, sinful ways of doing things, sinful ways of thinking that still want to domineer us. And what God wants to do is he wants to reform our mind and our behavior and our hearts so that we can live more like him. Do you think that's possible? I do. I think that God has promised it. Not only is it possible, it's promised to those who will walk with him through this process. So he says, sanctify you through and through. Sanctify you, once again, just to make you holy. Uh, May God, Paul prays here, may God make you holy would be to set you on the other side of the line with him. And he does that at salvation. He grants that to every believer. Sainthood. Did you know you don't have to be dead for so many years and you don't have to perform uh, so many miracles to be a saint? You're a saint in Christ because of all of Christ's work, if you're trusting in him. Okay, so he does that in salvation. Then he says, uh, as part of this, may he sanctify you through and through. And the actual word here is holy complete, holy complete. That's a it's not really how we would say it in English, but the meaning of that is the, the holy part, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. That holy part means completely, and it's applied to the body, okay? So that we, can't, we shouldn't look out at the body and say, well, some people just have the knack for this holiness thing, and other people don't. No, he's saying the, the you is a plural, and he's saying may he sanctify all of you completely, Nobody gets a pass on the holiness pursuit. Everybody ought to be being made holy in Christ. Okay? Nobody gets to say, well, he's leaving poor Jimmy out. Uh, he's just never going to get it. God wants to do that for all of us. And he's going to do it. He wants to do it completely. And that would be to be fully dedicated to the Lord. Paul is praying that God would so work in you and me that uh, we would continually bring all of us to the other side of the line as he sanctifies you more and more. You're going to increasingly put off the old habits of life. Then look at the next part of this. It says, may he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So here, uh, when we think about the issues of holiness, they're not merely externals. In the past, um, issues of holiness had to do with, like, the length of your hair. When my dad was growing up, um, you didn't want to be in the movie theater if Jesus came back because if you were in the movie theater, for some reason, you would miss the rapture because there's only unholy things that went on in there. So you didn't want to be caught (laughs) doing that. Well, I don't think it's quite like that. And one of the other things was, and I went to Christian school when I was growing up, so I knew this, but I went in the 80s after some of the relevant reasons for this had changed. But um, you couldn't have your, if you're a guy, you couldn't have your hair too long 
And if you're a girl, you shouldn't have it too short. And those were holiness issues. And I didn't know why. And sometimes we just neglected to cut my hair in time, and it got over my ears, which was a no-no for some reason. You can't have hair touching your ears. Um, that's sinful. And you can't have hair touching your collar. That's sinful, too. And we didn't know why. I know a better reason why now. It's because back in the 60s, long hair was a sign of rebellion. It was a statement uh, against the man, apparently, that we're going to do our own thing, and we're not following into your hard and rigid rules. And so I think much of the church said, well, rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. We're not going to do that. And it's wrong to be like that. Well, I wasn't doing it for that reason. My mom had just neglected to take me to the barber. And so it wasn't unholiness in my heart. Uh, probably, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm going to stop with that. But I do know that um, for different reasons, people had different definitions of holiness. And many of them were external. And one of the things that people used to do is preach the clothesline. Like, you can't wear Jezebel red because that's of the devil. And, you know, all of these really fast and rigid rules that, that aren't really even in the Bible. Right? They're just external things, traditions of, of men. And we made them rules that you're either in or out based upon whether you followed that. They, they had nothing to do with the will of God. And in the soul, so those are externals. And there are externals. Like the Bible says that we shouldn't, and, and we, it says it right in this book, that we shouldn't live in sexual immorality as Christians. It's not God's will for you, but we're to be sanctified. Okay? Sexual immorality is a broad category of sexual sin that has to do with any sexual relationship outside of marriage. And so when it says you're not to do that, it's talking in a broad category, and it's saying this is God's will for us. Okay? Those, are, those are external sins, sins of the body, and they matter because they also pollute the soul. But he wants to, he wants to perfect us spirit, soul, and body. Okay? If you look at this, you can see it. Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, Paul here is talking about internals and externals. I'm not going to try to break down the difference between uh, spirit and soul. There's an ongoing debate about all of that. But I just want to talk about uh, sort of what we might call the internal aspect of this, the things that you, you can't, they're not tangible, they're, they're attitudes and affections, okay? So, I didn't realize, did you realize that the word attitude uh, has a really interesting history? I didn't realize this. Anybody, you know what the word attitude comes from? Attitude actually comes from uh, the realm of painting, and it's the position that a certain um, object, I guess that would be the right word, when being painted, a person being painted, the, the position or posture that they take towards the painter. And so if you want to um, paint somebody who's angry, they have a certain posture, or happy, they have a certain, or regal, they have a certain posture about them, and that was called attitude. Okay. The posture that you take towards something, okay. can you see how that kind of shifted and it became, there's attitudes now of the mind, the posture that our mind takes towards something. I didn't realize it had that interesting attitude uh, or that background that went with it. The metaphor is dead, but maybe you can still see that what we think uh, represents a posture of the mind towards God, the world, people, circumstances. For example, um, 
God wants to work within our souls to correct the postures that we have towards things that have been affected by the fall. So he wants to make our attitudes holy. Do you agree with that? And maybe more important, would you say yes to that? If God wanted to do that, would we allow him to change our attitudes? And he does that. And even in the New Testament, Jesus is about this work. He's A good example of this is in the way we view our enemies. In Matthew 5.43 and following, Jesus quoted from a popular teaching of the time. Now, I want you to know that the first part's in the Bible, but the next part came along from popular teaching and preaching. Here's what he says. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Where does the Bible say hate your enemies? Nowhere. But somehow that attitude had gotten adopted as if we really need to love those who are near to us and hate people who are far away. And so Jesus sets about correcting that attitude that they have, the posture of the mind that they have. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, be like this because this is what God is like. If you're going to be on God's side of the line, bring your attitudes onto God's side of the line. Adjust the attitude to match his attitude. Then it says that God, he says, God causes the sun to shine on the uh, evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? Those poor IRS, IRS guys, they're getting grief from Jesus here. Verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Don't even the unholy who are not on God's side of the line do that? Don't they do that very thing? Then it says this, verse 48, and this draws us right back into the center of our discussion. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Saying, be like him. You're on his side of the line. Be like him in your attitudes. And that means that we have to undergo transformation. That's painful at times, but necessary and we will rejoice on the other side of the pain if we have to go through that. Okay, So he's adjusting our attitudes. The first view that Jesus corrects is incomplete and imperfect. Be uh, Even unholy, it doesn't share the attitude of God, and it even opposes it. And I want to take a little weight off the top of that um, demand, is that God isn't saying that you have to feel good about your enemies. Do you know that? He's just saying that we're to act in love towards them, even if we don't like what they're doing towards us. And so the holiness of the soul is to restore things that are broken in us. And yes, hating people is brokenness. And holiness will affect other attitudes as as well, how we view stuff. How do we view stuff? Do we buy into the American dream? That's not not gospel-centered, okay? I'm not saying America's contrary to God. I'm saying the American dream... Much of it has to do with our own personal happiness and success. and has very little to do with the kingdom of God and sacrifice and living for God. Okay, And if we're adopting what culture thinks is the good life, then we're running contrary to what the gospel calls the good life. The blessed life looks a lot different if you read the Beatitudes than what we hear and we see on commercials. And so holiness affects those other attitudes, how we understand sex, how we think about power, and above all, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is not being happy until we die. 
That's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to be enjoying right relationship with God. Okay? That's the purpose of life. That's our chief end. It's to know him and to fully enjoy him forever. And you will. Do you realize that as sad as you might be in today's world, if you're trusting in God, there is joy forevermore. But on the contrary, happy as you are in this world, if you don't know Jesus, there is sorrow forevermore. And so we have to buy into the right vision of what life is about. And holiness has to do with how we think about these things. The purpose of life is not being happy till we die. It's being right with, with God in every heart's true home, which leads to fulfillment and endless joy. Okay, so that's attitude. He wants to deal with our behavior. We know a lot about that. We know the do's and don'ts of sin, I think, for the most part. But what about the affections? Okay, there's the behaviors, there's the attitudes and the affections. And affections are simply things that we love. Holiness concerns what we love most and in what way we love them. So if you'll think with me about this, what you love, have you ever heard um, the heart wants what the heart wants? Anybody heard that before? Lie. At least it's a justification for really bad behavior. As if we can't set our affections, like the Bible says, set your affections on things above. See, what that view treats it like is that our heart is just this free-roaming magnet that finds something to attach itself to, and once it's stuck on, you just can't get it free. As if that's the way that life worked. Okay, It's not like that. It's not like that at all. The biblical view is that as fallen beings, we fall in love with things that we shouldn't. And we love sin when we should love righteousness, and we love darkness when we should love light. And we love the creation more than the creator. And so when we come to God, when we're being made holy in his image, one of the things he's going to deal with is our affections. He's going to adjust our affections. He's going to change our affections. He's going to ask us to set our affections upon him. What do you love? I'm going to read Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, and I'd like you to pay attention as I read this to uh, how love is used. Listen to this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Okay, The problem in this passage is saying in the last days, Terrible times will come because people's affections will be directed in the wrong way. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? That when we love the wrong things, it produces a culture of chaos. When we do, and we, when we love ourselves, if everybody is their own God, can you imagine what kind of chaos that is creating? I mean, you can. You don't have to imagine it. Turn on the news. That's what happens when we're all our own gods, but when we come together under the banner of Jesus and we make Christ our Lord, we acknowledge him as Lord, we can begin to love one another and go the same direction. And if we have dispute, we can understand that there's an objective way to deal with that. And so it changes things. I'm not so sure about that last part, what it exactly means, and Paul doesn't define it. He says, having a form of godliness but denying its power 
He could be talking about pagan religion. He could be talking about people who are coming close to Christianity, but there's something fundamentally wrong in it. And I think one thing that could be applied here is that there's a form of Christianity that is self-serving and not God-serving. It makes God the servant to man. And I think there's, there, there's no power for change or transformation in something like that. There's no power to change the world in self-serving religion because we're serving ourselves, and a self is the very thing that needs to be changed. And I want to caution us about something here, and that is uh, there is a version. I'll I'll go light on this because I want to talk about it another time, but there is within psychology, there can be a a fundamental thing that makes it all about serving self, okay? And there are people that are within the discipline that are warning us, people who are committed believers that are saying behavioral science is good, but when it adopts a philosophy of self-serving, it becomes destructive, and it becomes a religion of its own. And there's a book, and it's not written by slouches. This isn't like some weirdo fundamentalist over on the right that's saying, look, here's what I think. These are people that are have real credibility. This guy, Paul Vitz, he taught at NYU in the psychology department. He wrote a book called, um, oh, now it's, I'm drawing a blank here, Psychology as Religion, The Cult of Self-Worship. And he's warning us. And he's not the only one. There's guys like David Meyer, and there's a whole lot of these guys that are out there that are saying, watch out, because there's something fundamental about this that's making it self-serving. And we need to understand that there is that out there. And it's like the pseudo-sanctification. It's the false sanctification that says life is about self-actualization. Life's not about that. Life is about being conformed to the image of Christ. Then we'll know our true selves. We'll find our true self's home. Now, you might have heard me say psychology is all bad. I didn't. Many people have been helped by that. Many people have been helped by counseling. I'm not suggesting the whole thing is bad. I'm saying be careful because within it there can be this latent self-worship. And we have to be able to distinguish between those things if we're going to be sanctified in Christ the way that he'd want us to. How you love um, will be changed and transformed as we talk about our affections a little more. You can love your family uh, without being a Christian, right? But when we've experienced the love of the Father that we didn't deserve and when we see the example of Christ to self-sacrifice, he set self-sacrifice above self-preservation. We see something of what love is like. Um, And when the Holy Spirit grows in us, the fruit of the Spirit, we love differently than we did before. We're being sanctified in our love. And it's it's being prayed about right here, but it doesn't mean... Uh, it doesn't mean that a person can't sin when, you, when you're being prayed for in this way. I think the very fact that Paul is praying this prayer, may God sanctify you through and through, suggests that we could live a life that's blameworthy. We could live a life that's unsanctified. And God would not be pleased with that. He wants to sanctify. He wants to make holy. He wants to bring to his side of the line all of who we are, the entire person. And he wants the entirety of who we are to be blame-free. Okay, look at, look at what it says here. May your whole spirit, soul, and body, these different aspects of who we are, be kept 
blameless until the coming of Christ. Okay, we could be blameworthy, but he's saying you can be blameless. This tells us the degree to which he wants to go, to where not only are you living right, but no accusation can be brought against you. Okay, that's a high and lofty goal. Like This is far above a lot of the mediocre approach that we take to sanctification. Like, I'm just going to kind of get, get through, and, and God will take care of it on the other end. All of what Scripture uh, has to say about this, I might be getting ahead of myself on this, points to the fact that he wants to sanctify us for the purpose that we're going to meet Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're going to meet Jesus, and that's serious. We need to begin to take care of business with God's help, and he's the one doing this in this passage. Uh, The verb kept here is a divine passive, which means God can keep you. But it doesn't mean um, if you sin that it's God's fault because he failed you. In another place, Scripture says this. This is one of, uh, I told you last week about memory verses, and I tried to pick the shortest one on the day that I got freedom to do so. This is one of the longer ones. And my mom helped me to do this by drawing little pictures that related to the words. I remember sitting on our very couch and, and, remember, and memorizing this verse in the KJV. I'm going to read it from the NIV here. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. It said, says that in this passage too. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. If Scripture's true, no one can say, I just couldn't bear the temptation. Right? Do we take the Bible seriously? He will not allow you to be tempted above what you can bear, but with your, when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. God will make a way out. And so no temptation has overtaken you. This is God's faithful way, is he'll point the way out. Now, your desires and everything in you might say, go with the sin. But God is making a way that you don't have to, and he'll provide you the power to do so. Three things are expressed in sanctification. One, God wants all, wants to have all of you, not just all of you collectively, all of who you are as a person. He wants all of you. Like There's no shutting aside a little closet and locking it up and saying, that's the me closet. God gets everything else, but I've got the me closet. No, he wants all of it. And when he comes in, he gets the prerogative to change things, to move the furniture, to throw some things out, to change our affections, to change our attitudes, to change our behavior. This is lordship in Christ. And if we're not on board with this, it may be because we have a, we have a secular view of the Christian life, a worldly view. The, the gospel view is Jesus is Lord. He gets it all. And... Life, you, you, never knew, you never knew yourself until you know yourself in Jesus. You don't know yourself. Take, take, take the word, the collective witness of this congregation, of all who know Jesus. You didn't really know yourself until you met Jesus, and you came to terms with the real you. And you're still coming to terms with the you, because you're the real you when you're in God. Because every heart is a vacuum without him. We're incomplete. We're without all that we are of our personality, uh, the main piece is missing, the life of God. Like this me of being able to stand and speak in front of, that wasn't me before Christ. That was another failed version, right? Anybody a 2.0 in Jesus? <laughs> it's almost like there's a new program's been written, and uh, same body, sadly, right? 
Wouldn't it be nice if right away, oh, new bodies now. Can I pick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we all know. Okay, he wants all of us. And I, that's the point I'm trying to get at here. And then the second thing is that God wants to redeem all of you. Not only does he want relationally to have all of us, he wants to redeem all that we are. The, the sinful part he wants to cut away. And he wants to keep the holiness. He wants to make you into the person that you were intended to be. Augustine made the argument that evil is not a thing. It's the absence of good. And so what is not honoring of God? He takes, he takes and transforms our lives and turns us into creatures fit for heaven. A third is that God wants to transform all of us, every area, to his purpose and glory. What's the goal of holiness? Uh, kind of touched on it, but there's a lot of emphasis on being whole, holy for the moment that Christ returns. And this is, it's kind of embarrassing because this is all through Scripture here, and we don't talk about it as much as we should. But from the Gospels through Revelation, there's a lot of emphasis on being ready for his return. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 5, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand before the bema of Christ. And he's coming for a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He's carrying it on until we see Christ. He's perfecting us for heaven, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, 1 Thessalonians 5.2. These are all passages, and it goes on all the way into the book of Revelation of being prepared, that he's making us holy so that when we see him, we don't have to be ashamed. Do you realize that? We're not just waiting for heaven to be holy. God has begun the work of holiness by setting us on his side. He's continuing the work of holiness by dealing with the things that are on the inside and the out, and he's preparing us for a day where all the effects of sin will be dealt with. He will set things right. And so he's preparing us for that moment. And we, we can be a part of that by dealing with sin in our lives, confessing sin. If you know of sin in your life, that the best thing that you can do is come to agreement with God on it. Do you know what confession is simply this? It's to agree with God's terms. So many times, you can see this from the very first sin, there's justification for it, of why we did that. Remember, Adam, why did you sin? The wife you gave me, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit, and I ate it. So if he was a mindless victim in all this, I mean, he's the one that received the revelation. And then, uh, Eve, did you do that? Yes, but this serpent, right? Excuse-making. It's always pointing blame, and we act like this is a new thing. We want to cast off blame because if we take ownership, then we have to take responsibility. And so he didn't want to do that. She didn't want to do that. The serpent has no one to blame. And, uh, of course, there's consequences regardless. But confession is to, to say what David said in Psalm 51. Do you remember when he was confronted for his sin, what he said? Your judgments concerning me are right. In other words, what you say about me is right. I'm not going to make excuse. I'm not going to try to justify my sin. I'm going to, what you call it, I call it. Okay, if you say it's sin, it's sin. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter how I feel. What you've said is right. Folks, when we start to get that, it changes how we view good and evil. In uh, Isaiah's day, he said there are people, what are those who say that 
uh, good is evil and evil is good. We can see this great reversing. I know I mentioned this a long time ago, but um, we used to watch Survivor. And I remember there was a long time ago, there was this couple on there that were Christians and they were waiting to get married uh, before they consummated their relationship. And on that show, they a lot of the people that were um, there were making fun of them as if they're weird. They're so weird that they're waiting to get married. And they're so weird because they're not being sexually active and all of that. And um, it occurred to me that that's the very definition of this, is that we can get upside down in our thinking when we don't think of things from a biblical point of view. Let's talk finally here about the agent of holiness. The agent of holiness is God himself. There are, there are two things that are true about holiness. Um, the first is that it's the work of God, and no one can be holy except through God. You realize that if you reform your behavior and, and get yourself into the right kind of patterns, you can make yourself do and not do certain things. I'm amazed. I read uh, not long ago the, the writings of uh, Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, and he believed that anybody could bring all of their behaviors under control. And he's right. Sadly, many of the Stoics could do better than many Christians because we haven't appropriated the help of God. But they, through discipline, did it. And if you can do it through discipline, you can certainly do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You agree? That we can bring our behaviors into correction. But those people who brought their behaviors into the right forms, they were still not saved, and they were still not really holy. Their behavior was just reformed. They weren't on God's side of the line. You understand that even though they did the right thing, they still had a huge sin debt that needed to be covered through trusting in Christ. And so they weren't holy. The work of holiness is primarily, first, God's work, and he invites us into it. Okay, And then he brings us to his side of the line. And the second thing that we need to know about holiness is that holiness is also commanded and therefore required of people. Come on, isn't that isn't it true? You don't want to say it too loud. Somebody might hear you, hold you accountable. So we have passages where it seems that holiness is all God and places where it seems like it's all on us. And it can create this wrong idea that it's either God or us. And I think it's best to understand the power of God enables weak people uh, acting in response to his word to live exceptionally good lives. Okay, to illustrate this um, is is uh, to know the will of God, and uh, we obey it. And uh, the interesting thing is you'll see that there are action verbs related to being holy, and there are stative verbs. Stative verbs are those, like, to be verbs. Like, this is what you should be. Like, existing verbs. Okay? You should be this way, and you should do this thing. The action verb is Hebrews twelve fourteen, where it says, strive for peace with everyone, and, and it carries the verb meaning over, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word there means to pursue after with intense effort. We're to strive to be holy, okay? But we're not doing it alone because there's the to be verb in this. And you can see this in First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Be holy in all that you do. It's to be a certain thing, and we're not powerless to do this because God's help is there to accomplish it. Usually in the New Testament, when it uses the word God, it's talking about the Father, and he himself will do it. Notice uh, 
uh, verse 23 here, may God himself, when you see himself after God, it's doubling down on the per- person who's doing it. When it's, it's intensifying, God is the one who is behind this, okay? He's the one accomplishing this. God himself, the God of peace, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Okay, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in this passage, but you can't read too much into that since we know that the Holy Spirit is an agent of holiness. Where the Father and Son are at work, the Spirit is somehow involved. Okay, in triunity, they're working different aspects of the same work, and there's overlap. The aim is to be holy. Um, we're to be like Him. We're to be with Him and share His holiness. It's God calling us to Himself. And so we have both the God making us holy, and we have ourselves to strive for holiness with his help. And this is commanded through the rest of the letter. And you can often see different views. The holy life is characterized then by a moment-by-moment dependence upon God. And we're to be blameless. Um, I wanted to, in this last minute or two here, I wanted to talk about the beauty of holiness there's a beauty to it, and I think one of the things that has hurt the church's reputation in our culture is that we've been unholy. Okay, we've we preached a certain kind of message, and then we've been hypocritical about it. We haven't lived on God's side. There's a beauty to it and a convicting power to it. When you truly live holy lives, then a lot of times you don't even have to say the same words. Like, you could be a preacher of... Um, of righteousness and stand up and tell everybody you're wrong in what you're doing, you can live such an exceptional life that they see, by contrast, their lives are not what they should be. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? That there's a, there's a holiness put on display, and it's beautiful. The Scripture talks about the beauty of holiness. If God is the source of all beauty, to be like Him is to be beautiful, to be beautiful in your character. There are people you know here they're beautiful people. And if you knew them before Jesus, you would not think there's anything beautiful about that. Come on, true? If you're that person, say amen. He changes us, and he transforms us into a life that's beautiful. And holiness gives you authority because holiness carries weight with it. When you say what you have to say at times, you have to say the hard word, and if your life is matching it up, it carries a weight I remember as a a kid, um, when I wasn't living right, I was always scared to be around the pastor. That's a holy man, you know. And so I didn't want to. I didn't want to be around. It carried a certain authority with it. And holiness gives your words credibility because holiness is doing the right thing. And holiness makes your life a witness because holiness is the character of God. And it testifies against the world by the way you live. And it may be one of the things that we're missing from our witness. Um, it, it has a powerful effect. I want to tell you a story, and I've, this story came to me as something that happened a long time ago. And um, I'm going to use myself as an example, but I want you to know that since this time, I haven't always done this perfectly. So I'm not trying to say this in pride or anything. In fact, I didn't even know what I was doing at the time. Um, when I was 18 or 19, I would work with my dad at a, a chemical plant, and every day we would have to drive through a little guard shack to get into the chemical plant where we he was a contractor, and so he was building block buildings and different things. And 
And so we had to drive past and check in, and they needed to get our badge number and make sure that they knew we were on there <laughs> in case the whole place, you know, blew up and whatever. So anyway, we passed through this every day. And there was a, a guy that worked at the guard shack, and he was a nice enough guy. I can't even remember his name. But uh, one day when I was going through, I stopped to sign in, and he was joking around, and he told me a dirty joke. And I don't, I don't even know what it was now. I can't remember. Well, I felt a little dirty just having heard it, and so I didn't laugh at what he said. And, in fact, I, I didn't say anything to him like, you should really not tell jokes like that. He was an older guy, and I was 18 or 19. I wasn't going to say something like that. Um, I could have said, you shouldn't tell jokes like that and run sex through the mud. It's sacred. But I didn't think of saying that, and it's probably a good thing. So I just said goodbye kindly and drove in. Um, and I worked the full day, and when I left, somebody else was on duty. And the next day in the morning, uh, when I pulled in, he was there. And he said to me, choking down tears, um, he said that I shouldn't have told you that joke. He said, I know you're a Christian and that you're studying for ministry. That's not the reason, okay? You understand? I think God was moving upon his heart because I didn't go along with the status quo. And that's that's one example. But it occurs to me, and like I said, he said, I wish I, I shouldn't have told you that joke. He's, it occurred to me that the Holy Spirit was convicting him, and I learned from that that if we're Christians and we'll separate ourselves from sin and to the Lord, it changes the environment we're in. Okay? So I wish I could tell you that I never laughed at something that I shouldn't have since then. And I have. I have I've at times laughed at things I shouldn't have. But it made a difference in that moment because I think he felt that he knew that it was wrong. And so if you're a, if you're a Christian and you're in any environment where you're living a life that's holy, it should include not only our attitudes, how we think about things and our affections, what we love and how we love those things, but also our behavior. And if you're a Christian and you're running around swearing, you're telling the world, I'm just like you. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying you lose your temper. and There's forgiveness for that. I'm not making it a legalistic thing. But if you're Christian and you're going and partying with everybody else and you're not living a distinct life, Peter said they find it surprising that you don't run to the carousing and the drinking like everyone else. They, they think it's strange that you live like that. And they should, because if we only have to offer them what they already have, we have nothing to offer. But if you live distinct, you've got something real to offer to the world. There is something in God. There's something unique. There's a better life in him. No Christian here will tell you, my life is worse having met Jesus. No one will say at the end of their days, you know what, I have regret. I shouldn't serve Jesus later and sowed more wild oats. Never heard anybody say that. Many times what we're hearing is, I wish I would have chosen him sooner. He's been so wonderful to me. I remember I heard of a, a martyr. I'm, I'm pretty much done here, but I heard of this martyr, Polycarp, and he was brought before the Roman governor. I don't know if it was Pliny or 
Pliny the Younger or somebody else, but they asked him, are you a follower of Jesus? Yeah. Will you deny him and we'll let you keep your life? And he said something like this, I've served him these 80 years and he's always been faithful to me. How could I deny him now? He was so, he understood living the holy life, a life that set him apart, a life that put him in the position where he could lay down his life in honor for Christ. But God has always been wonderful to him. The holy life isn't a drudgery. It's not like that legalistic thing that puts you in bondage. There's a freedom in it to do the right thing the right times. Are there restrictions? Yeah, there's restrictions. But it's it's not because it's a whole bunch of don'ts. It's because we so want to love God and be on his side of the line that there's certain things we're willing to part with and say, no, not for me. I love God. I'm, I'm set apart. I'm sanctified. I know that sounds super old school, doesn't it? I'm sanctified. And what we mean by that is that we're set apart for God. We're on God's side of the line. He's placed us there. We, wanna, we want all of our behaviors and our attitudes and our affections to be on God's side of the line. So we're striving for that. And not only we're striving, we're not striving fruit, fruitlessly. Here's the way I see this. God calls us to obedience, and that call is a promise that if you step out, I will meet you in it. Okay? So sometimes in my preaching, I've come from a, the tradition where we preached heavy on the responsibility of man. Okay? So, but I want you to know that I always believe, and this may be unsaid, but I want you to know it, that if you'll step out and do what God has asked you to do, he'll meet you in it and give you the power to do it every time. So do what God's asked you to do. It's not a man-centered gospel. God's the powerful one, and he's the one that transforms us. So, hey, thanks for your gracious attention. We got through 12 pages of notes. You can write that in your diary tonight. I endured 12 pages from the pastor. All right, why don't we stand together, and let's take a moment to respond before we go. It's been a long message. I hope to wear you down. That's what I was doing, wearing you down so that we could respond to the Lord. I'm kidding. Um, why don't we bow our heads for a moment? Here's just how I felt that I should end this, is that we should, if you're sincere about following God, that we should offer ourselves wholly to him, okay? That we should say to the Lord, Lord, search me and know me. Search my thoughts and know my heart. If there's any unclean thing in what I'm thinking, what I'm loving, what I'm doing, Lord, would you begin to deal with that? I offer myself without reserve, all access to you, okay? This is a surrender moment. And I think you'll find that in that there's power that God's going to meet you with. Maybe it's something, you know, I just want you to know right off the top, because I know where we can go with this in our minds, every Christian could respond to this altar call, okay? Because we're just wanting more of God. But maybe you realize that, hey, there's something that I'm doing that's out of God's will. I want to lay that down because I want everything in my life to be on God's side of the line. I want to lay everything at his feet. I want to offer all of who I am to him. I want him to transform those habits that once were wily and astray and to bring those into conformity with who he is. Okay, You could just simply say to the Lord today, I agree, Lord, with your assessment of me and help me change. I offer all of myself to you.
Okay, so whatever it is, let's. We know that God can do it. That's what this prayer is. Faithful is He who called you, and He will do it. It's a promise. He will do it. Okay, but there goes along with that the call to holiness and our freedom and responsibility to let God do that in us, to participate with Him, to cooperate. So would you, would you give God that access this morning? Okay. If you've never met Jesus as Lord and Savior and you want to, it's the most wonderful thing you'll do. You'll feel, a, you may feel, I can't say for everyone, but I do know that objectively he takes the burden of sin off of our lives. And many times the feeling that goes along with that is that we feel a weight's been lifted. And you can be right with God. Today you can you can rest in this fact that you are in Christ. And if anything should happen to you, you know that your, your eternity is secure in Him. And you can know that because He died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and He's offered freely salvation to all who will call upon His name. Today it can be, it can be true of you. You just say something like this in your prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. For Jesus' sake. Okay. However you'd want to respond, I want to open the altars up. Let's ask God to sanctify us through and through. That's Paul's prayer for believers. Let's pray that of ourselves as well. Offer ourselves to that end. These altars are open. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.